You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. Rewilding Earth podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. Kathleen Fitzgerald is a conservation leader recognized for her extensive experience in integrating large landscape conservation and development programs in Africa and North America. She was a senior staff member at the African Wildlife Foundation for 11 years, most recently serving as the Vice President for East and Southern Africa. She also serves as a member of the Rewilding Leadership Council. Kathleen now leads Conservation Capital's Business Consulting Africa Division, focusing on increasing revenue for protected area management and wildlife conservation. Kathleen has helped create new conservation areas, improve management of protected areas, established innovative public-private partnerships, and led community conservation initiatives. Today we talk about the state of funding for conservancies and parks in Africa, and what can be done to raise money for anti-poaching units and wildlife and wildlands protection throughout Africa. You know, I've had the, the pleasure of living in Africa now for the last 12 years, and It's an incredible continent with extraordinary biodiversity. And I've had the privilege of working in Central African tropical forests where we have the incredible great apes, uh, the vast savannas of East Africa, which of course supports the wildebeest migration and and other extraordinary species. And then in Southern Africa, Miombo woodlands, which of course support the largest population of elephants in Africa. So we know Africa is incredibly diverse. It's rich with biological diversity, 20% of the Earth's surface, but it supports about a half of the world's mammalian species. So incredible diversity. And that diversity is supported by an extensive network of protected areas. We have about 8,400 protected areas in Africa. And it's really the building blocks for biodiversity conservation. And the threats to biodiversity in Africa range from country to country and region by region. Poaching, habitat loss, climate change, infrastructure development, a whole suite of threats. One of the key threats that I've been focusing on recently is a lack of funding for protected areas. Because when you are protecting about 14% of the land area in Africa, it's a big budget. And, And across Africa, each country, I can say across the board, they simply don't have enough resources to support protected area management. Um, And so, you know, one of the key questions that we've been trying to answer is, well, how much do you really need? How much money do you need to ensure Africa's parks and conservancies are managed well? And last year I did a, a paper with some colleagues and we looked at protected areas that support lion. So we looked at about 242 protected areas across the continent Um, all of them supporting populations of lion or historical range areas where lions used to live. 
And what we found was annually, we need about a billion dollars a year for the protection of those parks. And that's consistent with some other reports that have come out from Convention on Biological Diversity, IUCN. So the bottom line is even prior to COVID, there is a major funding gap for protected areas. That's a heck of a number. In one way, and in another way, for what it is for, doesn't seem that bad either. What? How close are we to this? What's the current <laughs> funding level? Yeah, we're not that close. Um, you know, I some of the work that's come out, for example, looking at you know Craig Packer, who's done some incredible work on lions in Africa. The number that he likes to use is you need roughly $2,000 per kilometer square for a protected area that supports lion without fencing. And a majority of the protected areas in Africa operate on less than, let's say, $50 per kilometer square. And again, it ranges. So in South Africa, for example, the South African National Park Authority Sand Parks is much better funded than, for example, ICCN, which is the protected area authority in the Democratic Republic of Congo. So the budget varies and also the level of support. But the key issue and what COVID has highlighted is that a significant percentage of the revenue generated to support Africa's biodiversity comes from wildlife-based tourism. And what COVID has highlighted is just the fragility of that entire system. Because literally overnight, we have seen tourism shut down. And I, you know, I'll say completely, it has shut down overnight. Um, and so the revenue that we have relied on to pay rangers, to support habitat protection, to support anti-poaching, that has disappeared overnight. So in one sense, people are maybe imagining how much of a break wildlife is getting. Um, but I would caution that's probably not the way to look at it because that means that less, less patrols are going on um, probably if they're not funded, uh, rangers and um, all kinds of things to do with security might be a bit compromised with a lack of funding, I would say. Uh, how, do, how does all that, how should people be looking at it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's there have been images, for example, of lions laying in the middle of the road and, and those are fun to look at and you're 100% right. Some people have said wildlife is getting raked, and certainly it is in certain protected areas where we have seen too much tourism. And tourism has resulted in, for example, behavior change because of a lack of regulation on vehicles and the number of people. However, um, I, I would caution against those fun pictures because the reality is that without the resources to support the rangers who put their lives on the line every day, we're in trouble. Um, you know, for example, one of the areas I, I work in is the Masai Mara of southern Kenya. 
And the Mara is part of the transboundary landscape between Kenya and Tanzania. So you have the Serengeti of Tanzania and the Maasai Mara in Kenya. And in the Mara, for example, what's amazing is you have the reserve, which is a, a county reserve, so the formal government-managed protected area. Around the Maasai Mara are 15 community-owned conservancies. And what we've seen in Africa over the last 15 years is an explosion of community conservancies, which has been incredible because it's increased habitat, it's increased space for wildlife, but also it has driven benefits directly to communities. And so there's a much greater participation and support for conservation, which is fantastic. And so in the Mara, we have these 15 conservancies. They cover about 350,000 acres of critical habitat. And it's owned by about 14,500 Maasai. And every year to keep that land open for wildlife, those Maasai are paid and they're paid a lease fee. And that lease fee, the funding comes from the tourists that enjoy you know, holidays in those conservancies. So now with no tourists, um, we're scrambling to figure out how to raise the money to pay the landowners to keep that land open for wildlife. Because without that, you know, they're going to run livestock in there or maybe turn to other alternative land uses, which are not compatible with wildlife. And also that revenue supports rangers. In the Mara, for example, there are about 180 rangers, all from the local community, which is great. So it provides jobs um, as well as protection. And so that's just one example, one protected area in Africa where, you know, we need 4.5 million in the next 12 months. <laughs> so it's quite mm. dire. Um, but everybody, you know, if we are going to do the carbon stuff, the climate stuff, um, and people start traveling less, we still have a problem in Africa if the sole source of money is coming from tourism alone, right? You're absolutely right. Yeah. And, and that's where there's been the silver lining. So, you know, out of crisis comes opportunity. And, and certainly we are in crisis. And the way that we're thinking about this situation is the first 12 months, which we're in right now, it, it's an emergency. It's a crisis. And what we're focusing on is how do we make sure that rangers are still on the ground? How do we make sure that the management authorities have the equipment and the resources they need to continue the work they're doing? How do we make sure the communities that live with wildlife, that live adjacent to protected areas, have the resources they need? I mean, food security is a major issue. So that's the emergency phase that we're in right now. And it's, it's short term, we hope, right? No one really knows how long this situation is going to last. And certainly COVID has been slower in Africa than the rest of the world. Once we get through that emergency stage, we're then looking at a stabilization stage of about two years. 
Um, I mean, most most tourism operators, for example, are not thinking about any kind of return to normalcy for years, given what's happening. Um, so how do we then stabilize? How do we then recover? And then how do we grow? And the positive thing that's come out of this is looking at that issue that you just nailed, which is we can't rely on international tourism for supporting protected areas in Africa. It's way too fragile. And a country like Kenya, for example, where I live, um, we've seen this before. You know, we had a terrible election in 2007 and our tourism went down by 25% and we were in the same panic. Five years later, we had a bombing at a mall and tourism shut down overnight. And each time we go through these episodes, people say, we need to diversify. We need a more resilient structure to support conservation. And each time we come out of those episodes, we go back to quote unquote business as usual. And I think what we're realizing here is we're not gonna be able to go back to business as usual. We need to diversify revenue. We need a better structure going forward. And if you look at, for example, in Kenya, there's a conservancy called Opejita Conservancy. And it's located in central Kenya, just north of Mount Kenya. It's a relative, you know, it's 110,000 acres. And one of the most important rhino sanctuaries in East Africa. And they have about six different revenue streams to support the conservancy. And one of those is domestic tourism which is fantastic because it's not only generating revenue for the conservancy, um, but it's getting Kenyas out, out into the bush and experiencing wildlife. And they now have incredible advocates for the conservancy as well as for rhino conservation. So already we're starting to see people pivoting towards the domestic tourism market and trying to see how best to take advantage of that. Uh, certainly that's not going to be applicable everywhere. If you look at a place like Congo, tourism is just not really an option. I mean, there's some tourism in, in Virungas on the east part of, of DRC, um, but elsewhere, that's not an option. So we're looking at other revenue streams like carbon, carbon credits, for example. I mean, you mentioned climate change. Certainly there's a massive opportunity in the Congo Basin for carbon credits. You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. Did you know we also publish insightful and inspirational content from leading rewilding scholars, poets, artists, and organizers from around the world? You can visit rewilding.org and sign up for our weekly digest to receive brilliant, fresh insights on everything rewilding. You'll find over a decade of articles and news from the front lines of wildlands protection and all kinds of restoration efforts. Check us out at rewilding.org and don't forget to share it with friends. Are there any funds that are being discussed when we're talking about raising money globally from all kinds of different countries to pitch in for all the work, that, all the work, uh, including wildlife conservation, that must be done going forward? Um, is there any hope there? Or is there anything that you can talk about that, that might be a ray of hope that people are talking about? Sure. There, I mean, there is, which is great. And one of the points that we made in that paper that I mentioned on Lions was donor funding is not going to fill the gap, <laughs> full stop. And so 
yes, we, we need to cultivate new support for biodiversity, of course, from the philanthropic community. But we also need to be creative and look at how countries, protected areas, regions can generate their own revenue. And so with this COVID crisis, we have seen rapid response from the likes of USAID, the European Union, the German Development Bank, um, very generous philanthropists who are passionate about wildlife and conservation in Africa, which is wonderful. So we are seeing a response, not only looking at the emergency phase, but there is a real recognition of the need to build back better and to build better, more resilient structures going forward. It's also been great to see people often say there's, there isn't a philanthropic culture in Africa. And I completely disagree. Um, and it's been wonderful to see some of the philanthropic support that has come out of um, Kenya, for example, South Africa um, for COVID response. And in addition, the governments um, have come up with stimulus packages. So for example, the government of Kenya announced a 50 million euro stimulus package to support businesses such as tourism businesses. And so we have also seen African governments stepping up, which has been fantastic. Has anybody come up with anything innovative commercially to like remote tourism uh, of any kind? I mean, I know explore.org has cameras all over the planet. And people are tuning into those things, and I guess they're basically going off of ad revenue or something because you never have to pay for them. I was all, I was thinking, man, what if what if there was a revenue generating thing that could happen there? It's not like the interest in Africa has died down. The interest interest to risking your life to travel to Africa has. Absolutely, and it's great that you mentioned Explore.org because they've done some wonderful things in Africa. Um, and it, it has been fun to see, so Olpegida Conservancy, which I mentioned, they're doing sofa safaris. And it's, it's uh -huh. a way of keeping people engaged. And, you know, you go out with some of their amazing staff and explore the conservancy with them. And I think the key question everyone is wrestling with is, how do you translate that into support, financial support for the conservancy itself? And we'll get there. And there, there are in, in a number of countries in Africa, there are a number of amazing financial mechanisms that are in place already that we are trying to, we just released a report with IUCN on protected area finance in East and Southern Africa. And we were looking at innovative funding mechanisms. And the great news is that there already exist in Africa a number of different creative funding mechanisms. The challenge is replicating them and scaling them up. So for example, I'm working on a project in Guinea-Bissau right now where they've created the Conservation Trust Fund. You know, it's an incredible country on the west coast of Africa with important forest area, mangrove, incredible islands that support very important turtle populations. They have a chimpanzee population and they have a conservation trust fund. Um, in East and Southern Africa, we were working on an impact bond 
for rhino conservation, which would essentially peg a return on investment to rhino growth to really focus on increasing mm. the number of this critically endangered species. So there is a lot of creativity. We just need to scale it and replicate it. I don't think I have anybody else in the world I could talk to about this. And I've always had this question about new economies, emerging segments or whole new economies that are really based on the better the environment gets, the better your investment gets, period. Where wildlife or for forests or, or whatever. Well, the whole, I mean, the whole concept is it's essentially a payment for performance mechanism, right? And we've seen it in other sectors. We've seen it in education. We've seen it in prison reform, but it's never been done with wildlife. And so the rhino impact bond, the idea is, I mean, I'm sure you're aware, we've had massive poaching of, of black and white rhino in Africa for the last eight years, which has had a cataclysmic mm -hmm. impact on the species. And protected area authorities have done what they need to do, which is basically protect, right? But what we were trying to do is shift the dialogue to how do we protect, but also how do we start growing? the population. And the challenge is to grow the rhino population. And we were focusing on black rhino because, you know, critically endangered and less than 5,000 um, across the entire continent. To grow the black rhino population, you need substantial resources. You need a long period of time because you have to plan. And what we were finding was there was incredible support funding support for rhino conservation, but oftentimes the grants were small and short term. And so it was very difficult for your managers on the ground to really map out a five-year growth strategy. So the idea was if we could raise resources, enough resources over a five-year period, and there was a very detailed plan, a work plan, and an annual budget and activity plan for how to grow the black rhino population, which is kind of complicated because it's not just about reducing poaching, it's about making sure they have suitable habitat for growth. Then again, if, if you're an investor, Jack, you put your money in, and if we reach our target of, let's say, a 7% growth rate, you get back your money plus interest. Now, you're not going to get rich on this, right? We weren't looking at very high interest rates, but for people that were passionate about conservation and, you know, 3% return was adequate, that's what we were looking at. Do you envision a future where it's a lot easier to roll these things out? Because it sounds like there were some hurdles for this. It wasn't all that, you know, clean and easy. Is what work you've done and you've seen done leading to a future where we're going to be able to do a lot more of this stuff and roll things out like this um, easier, faster? I hope so. I hope so. And, you know, stay tuned. The Rhino Impact Bond is still um, under development. The London Zoological Society is, is really leading it. Um, and they have some great partners who um, are hopefully going to make it happen. And the whole idea with this pilot, again, this is the first time it's been tried with wildlife. I think there have been some other attempts um, in Canada as well as the U.S. Um, but the whole idea for the first one was to really target, you know, 
high level investment, so significant amounts, right? But longer term, the idea would be how cool would it be for you and I to maybe invest, you know, $500 and to be able to look on our computer and track that rhino growth. Man, I would be all over that. I know so many people would. Um, and we have to be going in that direction because in order for us to do the very, very big things that are ahead of us, that's going to involve the world's economy in a very, yes. very big, significant way. We can't, we can't bake sale our way out of this. No. I mean, so it's really encouraging to hear you talk about that stuff. And I yeah. would be following that very closely. Once again, everybody, just so you're, you're aware, Kathleen is with conservationcapital.com and does work uh, like this, of course, very, very well. <laughs> and it's really, really cool to talk to people like you who are getting things done in areas that I think a lot of people wonder about, like, where's all the money coming from or mm. should it be coming from? How are they getting these programs done in Africa? Like people are heartened to see videos on YouTube about uh, rangers that I, I everybody assumes the money's coming from tourism or something, probably, if they think about it at all, right. where these people are lined up and they're getting trained to be, you know, anti-poaching units and things like that. And all I all I see when I look at it is I'm sure that's run on a very shoestring budget, but still, I bet it's very expensive to do that stuff at the scale, which you said in the top of the hour, 14 percent. Um, of protected lands, supposed to be protected lands in Africa on the continent, um, that's a very, very big deal. So the resource needs are, well, like you said, also at the top of the hour, a billion would be nice per year, right? Yeah, yeah. And again, there, there's a lot of, of innovative stuff taking place in Africa. The other thing that we're seeing is um, innovative partnerships. So we're seeing a lot of collaborative management agreements with protected areas where um, a government will enter into a partnership with you know, African parks or Frankfurt Zoological Society to help enhance management. Um, and that's having a significant difference because then they're able to really work together and the protected area authority has a certain suite of skills and that that partner brings other skills and together it's it's a much more powerful and effective management tool so we are where we are you mentioned an immediate need for um what was the 4.5 million within a really quick time frame that was just for the masai mara where can people find out about how helping with that in particular well, for, so for the Masai Mara, for example, um, what's been amazing is that there's an organization called the Masai Mara Wildlife Conservancies Association. It's a mouthful, MMWCA. <laughs> and they are coordinating all of the conservancies in the Mara landscape which is great. And I think one thing that we as conservationists can do for the donor community is coordinate because they're getting bombarded with requests. And so MMWCA, for example, consolidated all the needs from the 15 conservancies in that landscape into one, one proposal, one request. They've also negotiated with the landowners a reduction in those lease fees. And that's great. We're seeing, you know, the tourism industry stepping up, government stepping up. We're also seeing the landowners step up 
and, and, and reduce fees, which is great. So a listener uh, is thinking, what, what else can I do? What, what should I be paying attention to? What buzzwords that I might be skipping over or might not be showing up as easily on my feeds, my social media, my email alerts? That I sh- that I should be paying can be a paying attention to that to to help. Is there anything else that we can do? Well, I think I think Jack, you highlighted it earlier. While it's fun to see these you know lions laying in the middle of the road, remember that these species are threatened. And again, we're seeing mixed messaging in terms of what's actually happening on the ground. We've seen an increase in bushmeat poaching, for example, in certain parks in Kenya. We lost six black rhinos in Botswana in April. Um, Whereas Kruger National Park is saying rhino poaching is actually low right now. So how this is all going to play out We'll see. But the bottom line, and uh, yeah, it comes down to paying for it. Um, And so I would say for listeners, certainly um, enjoy those videos of the lions and elephants that are coming out of Africa, but support some of those conservancies because they they need financial support to pay rangers, to provide support to communities that usually rely on that employment. I mean, there's there's a serious dearth of employment right now, which has a significant impact because there's just no social safeguard for a lot of the communities that generally rely on revenue. Um, you know, for example, in Rwanda, where the home of the mountain gorilla, the Rwandan government shares 15% of all revenue from their parks with the communities that live adjacent to the parks, which is the highest revenue share in Africa. Just to give you an idea, in 2018, just from the mountain gorilla permits alone, they generated $19 million. So 15% of that goes to local communities. So that's now been shut off. So those communities, that revenue source, they don't have it. And so again, I think for your listeners, any immediate support that can be provided to conservancies, protected areas would be great. And there are a number of incredible groups working throughout the continent. If you're listening to this podcast somewhere other than rewilding.org, and you can find it at rewilding.org POD, you'll see um, all of our episodes. Uh, make sure you get to this page because all of those links and opportunities to help in the way that you choose will be there. Anything else going forward? So we get past COVID. We get, you know, whatever that means. I don't know what past means it, but <laughs> we we go forward. We deal somewhat, we put out some fires and deal with some immediate needs. That diversification thing, I think, is really the crux of what we're talking about today. How do you feel about that in general? Uh, going forward? Are you hearing enough? Because you're the one who knows. You hear what most everybody else does not. You're privy to information that most people aren't. Is it looking good? Are we going in the right direction? I think we are. Um, I mean, so post-COVID, again, what does that mean? We don't really know. You know, obviously, the thing that we haven't even spoke about is, is what we know is that COVID comes out of and and has come from 
wildlife, right? So what, what I hope is that one of the things we recognize post-COVID is that you know, three-quarters of the diseases, according to CDC, um, which infect humans, come from animals. And the more we disrupt nature, the more we disrupt protected areas, the greater incidence we're going to see. So my hope is post-COVID, we see more support and more recognition of the need to ensure that the protected area state in Africa is well-managed, is protected, and that the ecological integrity can be intact. I really hope there's a strong commitment to that. The other thing we haven't really spoke about as well is that what we have seen out of COVID is that there have been some bans on illegal wildlife trafficking, which has also been a positive. And so I think all of your listeners, one of the things that they can do is, is keep watch. Hopefully, post-COVID, those bans will stay in place because it's obviously had an impact on human health, but it's had an impact on wildlife trafficking. Um, I mean, pangolin, for example, it's the most trafficked mammal in the world. Um, and so China in particular has put in place some bans. So post-COVID, we all need to make sure that those bans stay in place. It can't just be a temporary measure. And then lastly, it's really about how do we build back better? And I, I am optimistic. I think the message is being heard. Um, you know, I've seen a lot of leadership within Africa with the African governments, ministers of environment, as well as tourism, really interested in thinking about how do we create more resilient structures and um, diversified revenue streams. And like I said, they're there. We know what some of these are. The question is getting the resources to the right place so that we can scale it up and replicate it. All right, everyone, make sure that you get to rewilding.org slash POD and uh, look up this podcast with Kathleen Fitzgerald. And you will have tons of resources to help in the ways that uh, you have so eloquently elucidated today for us. And thank you so, so much for taking the time. This is a really, really important subject, and I'm so glad that we're finally getting to cover it and that you are here to help us today. Thanks, Jack. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. We do what we do because of you. This podcast is supported by listeners like you who long to live in a wilder world. Please consider donating at rewilding.org and subscribe to our weekly news and article digest while you're there. To go the extra mile, you can follow and share Rewilding Earth on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Bonus points for sharing this podcast with your friends. To listen to past episodes, go to rewilding.org pod. That's rewilding.org pod.